This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Listen, we went over the big headlines that came out just about two hours ago about the CDC issuing new masking guidelines for fully vaccinated people. We heard President Biden, Tim, come out and talk about it. At the same time, there are two new cases of blood clots linked to the J&J vaccine. And you've got, you know, countries around the globe looking to help India because we know as was reminded in kind of a newsroom note today, that as when we talk about yeah. the vaccine feels and the virus, it feels pretty good in the United States. We've made a lot of progress. But you look to some European nations and you look to the developing world and you look to India, they are still struggling big time. And look, that's a really important point. The mm-hmm. fact is the United States is doing really well, but it's among only a handful of countries right. when it comes to vaccinating so many people. Yeah, so let's talk about it and let's talk about where we are and where we go from here. So great to have back with us Dr. Dave Westner. He's professor of biology at Davidson College. He's on the phone from Davidson, North Carolina. Dr. Westner, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Business Week with Tim and myself. You know, on our planning call today, our producer, Paul Brandon, reminded us that the last time we talked with you, we were talking talking about double masking, which is what I often do uh, in the office, outside the office still. And that was just a few months ago. Now we're talking about conditionally taking off our masks in public. Have we gone too far too fast in your view? Yeah, well, thanks for having me back. Sure. It's a pleasure to join you. Yeah, um, it's a dynamic situation. Things change Things change quickly. Um, yeah, I think given the evidence that we have now about how good the vaccines are working, um, I think it's worth relaxing some of those restrictions for people that are fully vaccinated. I think the the challenge is, you know, if you're out in public, you don't know what the vaccine status is of, of someone else. So I think that's where it gets a little bit tricky. It really seemed like with the CDC's presentation today, uh, Professor, that the point was to really get those people who haven't been vaccinated yet, provide some sort of incentive and to really show them, hey, this thing works so well that, that these are the things you can do. But I'm wondering... Did it not go far enough? Yeah, I think you know the the vaccine rollout. I think has gone pretty well in the United States. We had a rocky start. I think things now are going pretty well. Uh, but the big concern is that group of people that are vaccine hesitant. I mean, how do you get them uh, on board to, to get the vaccines? And, and yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Tim. That this this is sort of a you know a, a carrot approach. You know, look, if you get the vaccine, here's some extra things you can you can take advantage of. So you know, hopefully that will convince some people that have been on the fence about getting the vaccine. What do you say to people who are still afraid about getting the vaccine? Because I know people within my sphere that are definitely saying, yep, I'm not comfortable. I'm going to still wait. Yeah, I think, um, you know, follow the evidence. I mean, the evidence suggests these are really effective vaccines. The evidence suggests these are really safe vaccines. I mean, despite the the stories you've heard about the blood clots and potential association with the J&J vaccine, I mean, everything suggests these are really safe and extremely effective vaccines. What about from a public health messaging perspective? Because there there are questions about whether former President Trump should come out and give sort of a, a, a big endorsement of the vaccine and, and really messaging to people who follow him closely that this is the right thing to do. Yeah, I think those kinds of public announcements certainly help. I saw a, a PSA the other day with um, former President Obama and um, 
Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal. Mm. Um, and they were specifically targeting the uh, African-American community to, to get vaccines. But, yeah, I mean, those kinds of public statements by public figures certainly help, and, and we need more of those. What do you say, you know, I think about the science, and I did uh, some reading into the vaccine and the research to kind of understand it, if you know, just so that I knew what we're dealing with it. What is the science behind the process that we got here in terms of the vaccines that you think if you, you know, that you can share and remind us all that maybe would put some people at ease? Because I think there's still a feeling, Dr. Wessner, that we rushed through this. And we did, right? But the science isn't brand new. Right, exactly. And I think that's an issue we sort of talked about before when Mm I was was on with you. Um, Yeah, I think the, the approval of these vaccines happened quickly, but I don't think it was rushed. Uh, I mean, we had trials just like you would with any, with any drug, any vaccine that's getting approved. Uh, you know, there are 40,000-some people in the, the Pfizer vaccine, 40,000-some in the, the Moderna vaccine. Uh, you know, we went through those double-blind trials. We had good data about the efficacy of these vaccines, um, and we had good data about the safety of these vaccines mm. also. I mean, I think, you know, Anytime you're going from 40,000 people to millions of people getting vaccine, getting vaccinated, you know, there's going to be the chance that you see some issue, that one in a million event, that you're not going to catch, you know, even if you have 40,000 people in a trial. Uh, but that's always the case with, with new pharmaceuticals that are being developed. So, so I, I don't think people should worry about the, the process being, being rushed. Um, and for the basic science, you know, again, the, there's been a lot of talk about the Moderna and Pfizer being these mRNA-based vaccines, which mm-hmm. is something new. It's, it's new in that we haven't had human vaccines using those technologies before. Uh, but the basic technology scientists have been looking at, have been experimenting with for you know, a couple decades. It's not something that was just invented out of, out of thin air over the last year. And we're not changing genetics with these vaccines, despite what Despite what people <laughs> on Twitter get in touch with us about. Right. That's another, another concern that you hear uh, in various places, that because the vaccine is injecting uh, RNA into your cells, it's going to alter your RNA or alter your DNA. Uh, that's, that's not the case. The RNA that's getting into your cells through the vaccine is a very short-lived molecule. It degrades very, very quickly. You know, it's just in there for a short period of time your cells are producing some of that spike protein. Right. Uh, the immune system is recognizing that, acting against it. Uh, but there's no long-term change to your cells because of these vaccines. Uh, Professor Wessner, let's talk variants. There's a Bloomberg Intelligence report out this afternoon from Sam Fizelli, our colleague at Bloomberg, uh, who says that the virus variant from India seems like it responds to Astra and likely all vaccines. Are we seeing right now any variants able to really get past the existing vaccines right now to an extent that should be alarming to us? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And so far, it seems like we, we have not seen that, um, that variant that can, that can evade the existing vaccines. Uh, you know, the CDC categorizes the vaccines as variants of concern, and these are the ones we've heard about, the, the UK variant, the Brazilian variant, the South African variant. Uh, and then the higher level from that is uh, the variant of high consequence, and that would be a variant that can escape the existing vaccines. Um, and so far, we don't have a variant identified in that in that category. Uh, I mean, different vaccines are going to have different efficacies against different variants. That that's not a surprise. Um, but, but so far, it, it seems like the certainly the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are pretty effective against all the 
all of that uh, variants that we've identified so far. How does this work, though, in terms of variants mutating or having viral variants, right? We have it with, I'm assuming, the common flu, right? This is why the flu vaccine gets tweaked often every year. But when is variants normal and manageable versus variants being problematic and creating another pandemic? Right. You're absolutely right with the the, um, the flu analogy. We have a new vaccine every year because influenza virus mutates very rapidly, and we see slight variations in the, the strain of the flu from, from year to year. Generally speaking, coronaviruses do not mutate as rapidly as influenza viruses, so it, it's not that big an issue with, with um, coronaviruses, but they do mutate over time. That's, that's natural. You are going to see variants. Uh, and I think what we have to do as, as researchers is really stay on top of what variants are we seeing in different locations. We, we've heard a lot about genomic sequencing of the virus. Um, that's something the U.S. did not jump on early enough, in, in my opinion. Um, but we have to keep that, that genomic sequencing up so that we can identify those variants as they appear uh, and then look to see if, in fact, those are causing infections in people who already had been vaccinated, um, indicating that they may be, they may be breakthrough variants. Are we kind. doing that? Are we keeping on top of that? I, I, I think we're doing a better job now than we were six months ago. Um, yeah, I think it's one of those, those deals where you can't be doing good enough. But I think we are doing a better job now of, of monitoring the appearance of new variants. Hmm. So one thing I've been thinking a lot about is, is how the pandemic ends now that the United States is on a good path to vaccination, while at the same time, the rest of the world really isn't. How, how does this play out? Like, what are we talking about a year from now? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think there's a couple answers. You know, as long as the virus is mutating very rapidly throughout a population, whether it's India, here in the United States, some other place, there's the potential for new, uh, very dangerous variants to arise. Um, and I think that's that's one of the um, arguments in favor of the U.S. sending vaccine doses to, to India. Um, 60 million doses for India is a drop in the bucket, I know. But, but yeah, having us help another country get their population vaccinated uh, is potentially beneficial for us because it's eliminating the chance of new variants appearing someplace else. Um, then sort of the other side of the question is, you know, are we going to eliminate this virus? And, yeah. and I think everyone agrees the answer is no. It's not going to be like polio or smallpox or uh, one of these viruses that we can you know, almost completely eliminate from the human population. I mean, more likely, it's probably going to become uh, a recurrent issue that we see much like influenza viruses. Dr. Wester, 20 seconds. Do you see it, we get to a, a place where the world feels like it used to be? Yeah, good question. Um, largely, yes. Yeah, I, think, <laughs> I think there may be some things that, that never go back to, yeah. to completely normal, but, but largely, yes. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. I like that optimism. Yeah, Dr. I think that is optimistic. <laughs> I will do. Dr. Dave Westner, stay safe, be well. Professor of Biology at Davidson College on the phone from Davidson, North Carolina. You know, I feel like, Tim, with everything that we do, all our conversations, especially when it deals with vaccines and COVID specifically, there are caveats. It's just the way it is. Yeah, there's so much uncertainty right now, but that's yeah. something that it seems like we're getting used to. Yeah, exactly. And figuring out our way through. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. This story definitely caught Tim and my attention. It's a story online at Bloomberg Business Week. It's about how, for almost a decade, the movement to push businesses to pay at least $15 an hour. Tim, it's definitely gained momentum, but 
the U.S.'s largest employer, they have constantly shot the argument down. So let's get into that story. Yeah, that largest employer being Walmart, of course. Thomas Buckley is a reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from London. Thomas, thanks so much for, for joining us on this. Uh, when I read the first sentence of, of this story, I was immediately drawn in. Who is Mendy Hughes? So Mendy Hughes has been an associate at, um, at Walmart for some years now, and she is still earning $11.85 an hour, which makes her really an outlier to a number of similar uh, similar employees at the likes of Amazon and Best Buy and Target, all of whom pay $15 an hour. And uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. One thing that, and, and one thing, the reason this, what I mean, among the many things that just kept surprising me word after word in this was that Mendy is is the person who has been working there for for more than a decade. And what Walmart says about its wages is that it's investing in people for careers, not for jobs. But her pay seems to indicate that she's not being rewarded in that way. That's absolutely right. So she started out, I believe, on $7 an hour way back when, and that has increased to 11.85. I think that it's not increasing anywhere near as fast as she would like to see on the basis that, you know, as per the story, when she's short on Lunchables or frozen TV dinners, you know, she's having to stop by the drive through at McDonald's to uh, pick up, you know, um, items from, from the venue, from the value menu. Um, and also, to that point, I think that a number of her colleagues you know, survive on, on food stamps. So on that basis, I think certainly would want to be seeing um, a raise that's commensurate with what Walmart's rivals are doing. Walmart's argument has long been that they're really seeking to protect ladder of opportunity, wherein you know people's individual ambitions will be rewarded as they rise up in the business. But somebody like Mendy, for example, who has very immediate concerns or who has had very immediate concerns, such as, say, tearing her ACL and falling behind on medical bills, they're not so much thinking about their next job, but more, you know, what immediately has to happen for them to live a very basic level of dignity, I think. So help me out here, Thomas, because I think there are probably people who are listening. First of all, the math, that 1185 works out to about $474 a week. Uh, about 24600 a year. So that's what she's dealing with, and she's got a family. Now, I, I know that there are people listening saying, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe she works harder, and then she can get a better job, and she'll make more money and more benefits. There's that argument. At the same time, you know, you live in different parts of the country. These are the jobs available, and this is a company, Walmart. It's a wealthy employer. Absolutely. And, um, you know, more than a wealthy employer, which they certainly are, but, you know, really the world's wealthiest family, America's largest private employer by far. And, um, you know, to give you an idea of what it would take to get to $15, um, which they have done as an average, but not a minimum, is what they announced in um, in February for several of their several of their associates. I mean, you know, the amount that they're spending getting to that point is only about 10%, in fact, maybe even less than 10% of the amount that they're spending on share buybacks, because at the same time they announced this initiative, they also announced a $20 billion share buyback initiative. So it's certainly an employer that can afford to pay its employees 15 if it wanted to. Right. As you mentioned, their annual revenue increased to $35 billion to more than, or by $35 billion to more than $500 billion in the past year to earn $22 billion in profit. Listen, I am all for capitalism and people making a profit. I think it's really wonderful, and it's, uh, I think, the basis of our country, no doubt about it. What is the argument that Walmart puts out there in terms of not being able to pay some of its workers more money? I've been at those annual meetings where workers stand up and say, 
I work for you full time and I'm also getting welfare. <laughs> How does that make sense? And what is the responsibility of an employer like Walmart who is facing the big behemoth of Amazon who says, you can probably get it cheaper at Amazon? Sure. I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, to your point about capitalism, you know, really being the, the, the growth engine for so many developed economies um, over, over, you know, the past centuries, I think that what we have come to see is that, you know, you're sort of driving um, this this economy in a certain direction in the case of Walmart, because, you know, you are America's largest private employer, which means that, you know, you have a responsibility to lift a lot of people up. Um, and, you know, guarantee a, a fair living to, to the people that work for you. Where it becomes complicated is that the CEO, Doug McMillan, says that he wants, you know, to really stagger wage increases in the way that benefits the UK economy. So that means, you know, creating the right level of ambition within the company to see people rise. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, people who have a lot more immediate needs, including those on food stamps, might not necessarily see it that way. Um, and in the case of Mendy, to your earlier point, you know, what if she worked a bit harder or a bit longer? I mean, this is somebody, you know, who's pulling 40-hour weeks. Those who, you know, spend standing up the entire time. Wow. At times I'm playing COVID, devil's advocate. Been... I just hope you know I'm playing devil's advocate. Go ahead, please. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but just, just to use, you know, the specific example, yeah. um, because she is, she is one of, you know, 750,000 people at that level of, um, of, uh, of employment at Walmart. So these are incredibly difficult shifts. And, you know, they're very critical shifts or have been at least over the past year um, when shoppers have come in and have needed the cashiers to steer them in the right direction for their Lysol, their Dettol and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, it, so, no, it's, it's a very interesting, interesting dynamic we're observing at the moment. It is, Thomas. And I'm, I'm wondering why the market hasn't actually pushed the wages up because Amazon got out ahead of this and said $15 minimum wage. And it has served it pretty well. Costco, right? Costco has gone up to $16 an hour. Target has announced increased wages. Why hasn't the market done this to Walmart? So that's a really fascinating question. Um, I think that, you know, it used to be that I suppose all companies in respect were very much on even keel, you know, paying similar wages. And everybody was just gaming this, you know, waiting to figure out who would take the step to raise it first, whether they would remain an outlier, you know, in the near or medium term. And then all of a sudden, Walmart has found itself a bit cornered here because everybody has decided to leapfrog them to raise wages. And they are, you know, as per the story, a very clear outlier in this. Mm. And I do yeah. wonder, as you know, ESG trends gain momentum, whether there will be that added pressure on America's largest employer to actually do something about this. We shall see. And as you say, for uh, for Mandy Hughes, I mean, she's looking to leave Walmart, get out of Arkansas. And she says, I would love to get out of Arkansas if I could afford to move. And that's the other tricky part. Listen, this is a really important story. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for bringing it to us. Bloomberg News reporter Thomas Buckley joining us from London. Check it out at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. We got to talk about Tesla and we got to talk about the disc because investors tim not that impressed by tesla's record profit in the first quarter a uh, record profit a chip shortage that hey wasn't a big deal to tesla but out. has you know really been a thing that has 
really hampered. Look, si- sideline some companies. Yeah, exactly. Stock's down 4% today yeah. uh, near its low. So let's get into it. How come Ben Kahlo is Senior Research Analyst over at Baird? Kahlo, Kahlo, excuse me, Ben Kahlo. You think I would know this? Senior hey. Research, hi, <laughs> Ben. Hey, Carol. You know, it's been right. a while. I kind of it's like. It's been a know. while, and, uh, <laughs> and we've probably talked for 10 years about, about Tesla. It's okay. Uh, I mispronounced so my siblings' names. I don't think this blip is, uh, <laughs> is anything that we should get uh, too, too, too worked up about, but. Uh, but I'll let you take it from here. No, well, talk to us about that. You've got to now perform. You've got a price target of 736. Stock's now at 706, almost 707 a share here. Um, what's what's the problem with investors, or what do you think that they're focusing on and maybe that they shouldn't be, Ben? Well, I, you know, I think that there's the, the, there's always been a lot of noise. Um, and I think one of the biggest things that we took away from the call last night is, you know, the, the, the Model 3 is selling more than a BMW 3 Series. And if we take a step back, and like we go back to like five years ago or seven years ago, I don't want to age us, but uh, you know, if we, we go don't back age. Far, <laughs> if we go back that far, it's like no one thought that we were going to get here, right? Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, the, the expectations are extremely high. I mean, obviously, with a valuation of whatever it is, six hundred seventy-eight billion dollars, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot, uh, you know, th- that people are asking for. Um, but I think that, you know, the big things taken away from the call are, number one, demand uh, stronger than ever. Number two, uh, the plants that they're building uh, in Berlin and Austin and then expanding in Shanghai are going to o- only help them with profitability. Um, and I think the third thing is that, uh, you know, you have Elon, that, you know, he pontificated about autonomous driving for, for a lot of the call last night. And, uh, you know, he just sent four people into the uh, space station. And so for him to say it's one of the biggest problems to tackle, hmm. uh, I think that people, you know, uh, are, are, you know are focusing on that, um, uh, and rightly so. Yeah. I feel like Ben and Elon together are dropping the mic. I'm just <laughs> going to say that. Okay. Well, look, I, I, I do wonder, though, uh, Ben, if this, is, hey, if this is about guidance. Is this, is this about the company not saying... Uh, how many cars they're going to deliver in 2021? I think it's uh, just people running up a little fast money into the into the quarter, and so there's a little sell off is to be expected here. Uh, but to your point, Tim, I, I think uh, you, you know costs are going to come in. But uh, and I never covered Amazon, but I imagine you know as Amazon was growing, they started spending more money, and so you see on the OpEx side and the operating expenses that, that ticked up, and so I think we saw some of that with Tesla. And you know, in, in you know, people will point to Bitcoin, and they made some profits off Bitcoin, and and this and that. But that's been the story for you know eight, nine years. The earnings have been clean, but they still have earnings. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think there's some of the, all of that going on. So. How concerned are you, Ben, about all of the new competition? We keep talking about the green wave that's going to hit this year. It feels like finally, finally, the global auto industry has woken up and said, oh, wait, maybe Elon's onto something. So how do you see it? Is that going to be problematic? They're already, to be fair, Tesla is losing some market share here in the U.S. Yeah, so I think the the big big, uh, things that we have to watch out for is Rivian, uh, a Mm. private company. Um, I think you know on the uh, on the consumer side as well as on the commercial side. I think Rivian obviously they have Amazon as a partner, and so um, and after that, I think Volkswagen is probably the most uh, 
doubters of Tesla have uh, missed uh, how you know how rapidly they've scaled up with you know, those factories I talked about. Yeah, Ben. What what type of expectations are are built into the stock price right now? Like, what are analysts expecting? Because that's also can be part of this story, right? With what we saw yesterday, it was a really great quarter for the company. But right. hey, that's expected with what happened in twenty twenty right. to the company's stock. I think I think that there's considerable expectations uh, built in, into the stock. Um, I do think that you know one of the things that you know is a, is a call option or upside option is. Just is, you know, I, I focus on renewable energy as well, mm. and and the the energy storage piece of the business, uh, and the momentum that has, and the software that that they have behind it. Uh, it's you know AI. I hate to use you know buzzwords, but uh, you know behind that, and you know and building out power plants on, on lithium ion batteries and and solar. I think that that's something that's underappreciated there. And, and it's maybe built into that market cap, but it's also upside to that. And I'm a meat and potato person, so I don't, mm. I don't do robo taxi kind of stuff or, or anything like that. <laughs> but that's also, you know, that's also probably an upside to it as well. By the way, Ben Callow, you've earned the right to use buzzwords like AI. I'm just going to put that out there. Ben, good to hear you again. Thank you so much. I always appreciate your insight on names like Tesla. Ben Callow is Senior Research Analyst at Baird. He's got an outperform rating on the stock, price target of 736. And as we mentioned, though, Tesla's seeing some pressure. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 minutes left in the trading day. It is time for the drive to the close. Rebecca Corbin is with us, founder and CEO at the strategic consultancy and research firm Corbin Advisors. She joins us, Tim, on the phone in Farmington, Connecticut. Rebecca, good to have you here. Uh, just got a few minutes left in the trading day, but we've got a slew of earnings uh, coming our way in just a moment. We've got Alphabet, we've got Microsoft, we've got Starbucks, we've got AMD, we've got Visa, we've got Texas Instruments. I'm sure I'm leaving a few out here. Uh, how do you see kind of the market environment against the earnings environment? Well, first of all, Carol and Tim, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you this afternoon. Sure. Listen, equities are very strong right now. And um, given where we are with regard to coming out of COVID, with regard to the true fundamental growth that we're seeing, I think there's still room to run on these. And we're going to prove that out this quarter. Uh, we have uh, heading into the quarter, 84% of investors and analysts that we surveyed as part of our Inside the Buy Side Earnings Primer, 80 investors and analysts globally. We're expecting uh, raises in guidance, and our analysis so far is that 71% of companies have indeed raised guidance, and so we're going to continue to see that. So why are we seeing that play out in the way that investors are reacting? Because going into today, four of five companies that have reported earnings thus far have beat estimates, but on average, shares have gained less than one-tenth of one percent after the reports. This is according to data compiled by Bloomberg. Is it just because expectations are so high and this is all baked in? Actually, it's because consensus is so low. 
Sellside uh, has been notoriously conservative with regard to COVID. Uh, companies have been handily beating expectations. As of last Friday, S&P 500 companies that had uh, positive surprises were 85% of those companies that have reported against consensus. So I think we have, we have a, a couple factors here. We've got consensus. Uh, which they're handily beating, but why the why stocks are not necessarily on a tear is because it's the old adage, uh, buy on the rumor, sell on the news. These stocks are trading at all-time highs. The expectations heading into earnings was 60% of investors were expecting sequential improvement. Excuse me, 75% were expecting sequential improvement, and 60% were expecting beats. And so, you know, that's based into shares heading into the earnings. It's really been about the guides that companies have come out with, and we did drill down into those guidance, uh, companies that raised their guidance at the midpoint of 300 basis points actually saw 4.4% increase in their shares. Interestingly enough, juxtapose that against companies that raised their guidance in the zero to 200 basis points. So companies that didn't raise their guidance and companies that did but at a lower rate we're up 0.9% on average. So the market is rewarding a big guidance outlooks in terms of increases. Interesting, right. And I think this is a quarter in particular that we want to hear from companies and the C-suite about outlooks, guidance, visibility, and we're hoping it's going to be positive. Having said that, Rebecca, what you folks do so well is you do kind of track investor sentiment. What is, what, how do investors feel about this market environment right now? frothy at the mouth. I mean, it's all about growth. If you look at our word clouds over four quarters, it was uh, doom and gloom, gray and red. And now it's really upbeat. So, you know, we have Is it too frothy? growth happening. Because, you, you know, uh, I say... I don't think so. No. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, listen, we've got coming out of COVID and you must look at sentiment as um, a, a, a retrospective as well as a, a, a massive amount of, you know, where we were and where we're going. You cannot look at it in a vacuum. We came out of 2020, and we are seeing true fundamental growth. Uh, companies are coming out with Q1s in the mainly, you know, on average, uh, the companies have reported in the, in the high single digits versus guiding to, in some instances, down to flat to low single digits. So we are seeing significant increases in growth. However, uh, we also have, on, on the opposite side, we've got massive inflation. And we've got supply chain massive. disruption. Massive. And, and what do you mean by inflation. what do you mean by massive inflation? What makes you say oh, that? Oh gosh, Co- cost inflation, healthcare, labor costs, uh, commodities, shipping, everything is up. And what's happening is that a lot of companies are pulling forward their so, buys and they're buying inventory so that because they they see prices increasing. The Fed is and saying it's, it's, the, the yeah. Fed is saying that this any inflation that we see is transitory. So you're you're saying that's not the case. Well, what would you? How would you describe transitory? What temporary? What of time period? Temporary, right? Yes. Well, listen. It's going to take. Right now, we're starting to begin to see us inflation. We started hearing about it in earnest two quarters ago. Massive increase in inflation as a concern with regard to investors, moving from in the third quarter, you know, four mentions to now uh, almost six times that amount. Uh, that you know, and that's what they're hearing. That's what they're seeing in earnings. 
Uh, but you know, Rebecca, what, 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 let me just jump in for a second, because you know what Tim is getting sure. to, and, and this is something we have a lot of conversations with, and, and I agree that, you know, depending on where you look, and we've certainly heard it from CEOs about rising costs, and they're kind of holding off, at least for the moment, maybe of passing it on to customers, but is it temporary? Is it supply chains just catching up, right? We have a lot of, you know, the manufacturing capability maybe had held back because they had to uh, during the pandemic because there wasn't demand or they couldn't get the workers or what have you and they're going to be cautious before they ramp up because they don't want to do it too early. Is that some of what's going on, that disconnect between supply and demand? And it'll work its way out, I don't know whether it's six months, I don't know whether it's 12 months. Yeah, well, of course it will work its way out. So, you know, you have to work the cost through the, the system, right? And at the end of the day, it will reach the consumer. But, you know, there's value chains all over the place. So they are, you will hear on earnings calls, you have heard on earnings calls, uh, companies talking about cost actions. They are passing on costs. Typically, they they are saying that that's going to take you know two to three quarters to work its way through the system with regard to you know the the early stages, and that usually ends up at the consumer. So of course it will work out. And there is a lot of scarcity right now. So there's mm. a tremendous amount of demand, but there is scarcity. And on top of that, we have you know th there's scarcity because of the demand. There's scarcity because there wasn't a lot of production, and there has to ramp in production. And then, of course, you have the port issues that are exacerbating that. So, you know, it's it's something that companies will work through. Is it uh, something that is transitory? It depends on how long you think transitory is. It's going to be a couple of quarters, but I, I, it's pretty it's transitory, happening. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't necessarily make you think, though, that the Fed is going to change its outlook for interest rate raising, right? Based on that, no. I don't think that they're going to change their rate based on cost inflation at this level. Uh, and we'll have to see where things net out. Uh, we have other issues, though. Uh, we have a pretty significant labor shortage, and that's mm -hmm. something else that we're identifying. Uh, so you have a conflux of factors that, you know, this great growth that's happening. But there are some clouds on the horizon with regard to what could potentially stunt that. Yeah, exactly. Hey, listen, just 20 seconds left here. The big tech that are reporting, we're going to get ready for Alphabet and Microsoft. Any quick thoughts here? Listen, I think tech companies are, are always uh, going to lead. Uh, it's about it's going to be about capital allocation and investment. You see a lot of companies talking about reinvestment, talking about digitization, talking about really moving into that next uh, industry 4.0. And I think these companies are going to benefit from that. Boy, it's like uh, Elon Musk took a page from your playbook because they definitely have been doing lots of uh, capital allocation and capital investment. Certainly one of the names we've been focusing on on this Tuesday. Rebecca, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Rebecca Corbin. She's founder and chief executive officer of Corbin Advisors, joining us on the phone from Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.